the idea that the Christian tradition has always been against very early abortions, first trimester abortions, isn't true. This idea that women are being shamed and judged for abortion is a very, very, not just modern phenomenon, recent phenomenon. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Reverend Dr. Rebecca Todd Peters. She's a professor of religious studies and a director of the Poverty and Social Justice Program at Elon University. Her work as a feminist social ethicist is focused on globalization, economic, environmental, and reproductive justice. She is the past president of the American Academy of Religion, Southeast Region, and was Elon University's 2011 to 12 Distinguished Scholar. And she currently holds a senior faculty research fellowship from Elon. Rebecca, welcome to The Dismantle. Hi, Joey. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. I'm excited that you're on. Before we dive in, Rebecca, how did you get introduced to church and faith? What's, uh, what's some of your background with spiritual stuff? Sure. So um, I'm a cradle Christian. My dad is a, was a Presbyterian minister. He passed away about 20 years ago. But I grew up in the church. Um, and uh, Presbyterian Church, uh, USA, um, and uh, funny story, my dad used to, um, when he would get angry with us, he would always say, Rebecca Todd Peters, child of the covenant, and I never knew why he did that. And then after I had kids, I asked him, and he said, that's the baptismal vow. And he always had to remind himself that we were baptized you know, into the faith, and we were children of God whenever he got angry to help just sort of slow him down. That's awesome. <laughs> I do it with my kids. I love it. it. When I found out why he did that, it was just so cool. <laughs> I might be stealing that with my own. <laughs> now, Rebecca, would you say that there's been a, a progression from being a cradle Christian to where you are now? Well, you know, growing up in the church, I was in youth group and, um, you know, went to college and I'm also a college professor now. So I'm very aware of the fact that most kids, when they go to college, even if they grow up in the church, don't go to church. Um, but I got in with a group of young people my first year. There were three or four of us from different religious backgrounds, different Christian backgrounds. And we decided we were all going to go together to different churches every Sunday around Memphis um, and just sort of experience different worship experiences and different faith traditions. And that was really, really interesting and fun and, um, you know, inspiring to see sort of the reactions we got in different places and from different people and just to meet all of these people across the city. Um, and then, you know, I continued during college. I uh, was the youth leader for a youth group in my town, you know, in Memphis. And, um, and then I started working for the national church right out of college. And so I worked at the national headquarters of the Presbyterian church for two years and, um, decided at that point I wanted to go to seminary. Um, so, you know, I've really been in the church all my life. Um, and certainly my faith has progressed, uh, enormously in all of that time, um, and matured in, in many different ways. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. So. 
We're talking about abortion on the show today, but perhaps not from the perspective that many of our listeners are familiar with, definitely, I dare say, comfortable with, but we're going to go for it. Um, Toddy, can you talk to me about the first time or experience that you had with the abortion question? Sure. So when I was in high school, I was probably, I don't know, a sophomore or a junior, um, and um, a really good friend of mine came to me and asked me if she said, you know, I think I'm pregnant. Um, she was a year or two older than I was, but she wanted somebody to go with her to the clinic to find out, to do the test, because this was the early 80s and their home pregnancy tests were not readily available. Um, and, you know, so I went with her and it was one of those clinics that um, advertises that it's a, you know, pregnancy clinic, crisis pregnancy clinic, but is not going to share any information about abortion services. And in fact, required her to watch a movie, which I don't know for sure, but the way she described it, I think was probably the silent scream. Um, and everything about that experience um, was just really horrible for her. I mean, it didn't change her mind about what she was going to do. She had an abortion. Um, she, you know, was, I don't know, 17, 16, was dating, um, you know, the boy uh, who was the father, but, um, you know, he didn't have a job and she wasn't interested in marrying him. And so that experience, didn't help her in any way other than to find out a positive pregnancy test. It didn't help her in, you know, trying to figure out what her options were or to think through or talk through um, any of that. So um, it was a very, very negative experience, that first encounter that I had. Now, your approach to the abortion issue is that this is a normal part of women's reproductive lives. Can you can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. So um, in the U.S. today, one in four women will have an abortion in her reproductive lifetime. So the, by the time uh, women reach the age of 45, one in four will have had at least one abortion. Um, that's that's an enormous part of our population. Um, and even beyond that, half of all pregnancies in the country are unplanned. Um, and so you have every year uh, you know, one and a half million women, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, let's see if 6 million women get pregnant every year, 3 million women, um, who, uh, didn't plan that pregnancy. Now that doesn't mean it's unwanted. It doesn't mean that 3 million women have abortions about, uh, 40% of, uh, of that 3 million will, um, end up terminating the pregnancy. But that's just a much, pre, you know, unplanned pregnancy is just a very, very large part of public health in our country. Um, and 60% of women with those unplanned pregnancies will go ahead and, um, you know, accept that pregnancy and, you know, welcome that. Um, but 40% uh, won't. And uh, a quarter of women in the country have an abortion story. Um, and so, that's a really large part of the experience of women in our culture that is really silenced by the current cultural debate about abortion. Women are really, it's, it's really made very clear to women um, that they are not supposed to talk about their abortion experiences. And I think that's a problem. Even just the idea as I approach the subject within the show of how would I even 
A, find out that somebody, a friend of mine, you know, whatever the case, had had an abortion, let alone somebody would want to talk about that. That almost seemed insurmountable to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's interesting, you, you sort of touched on this idea that we don't talk about it and, and, and we don't talk about things due to shame, due to uh, grief, and, and also the judging that we experience within our, our families and our churches and our, our society because of the way that we view the issue. Now, it, where do you think that that comes from? As I was thinking about this idea, I was, I was sort of thinking, well, why did we all of a sudden just gang up and, and decide that that's not okay? Yeah. So, you know, there's a, a long history of debate about abortion in recorded history. You know, abortion isn't new. Women have always, as long as women have been getting pregnant, they've needed to end pregnancies for, you know, a variety of reasons. Um, and so, you know, you find, you know, abortion discussions, uh, you know, in ancient Greek literature, you find recipes for abortive fashions in um, Egyptian hieroglyphics. Um, it's just pervasive. It's part of human culture and human experience. Um, and yet it is something that um, people throughout history have also discussed and debated and 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 really um, held different positions on. And, you know, as we think about our contemporary context, um, this context of what I call justification that we really require women to have not just reasons, but actually to have a justification that is deemed acceptable by, um, you know, authority figures or religious figures. Um, that really is a very modern phenomenon. It's really a phenomenon that's about 30 years old. So, um, uh, there are a lot of, um, you know, anti-choice pro-life people who will argue that Christianity has always been against abortion. Um, and, and, you know, the problem with this whole debate is it, that, that statement is actually very complicated. Um, and while there are, uh, ancient sources that say, um, you know, that abortion is, uh, not acceptable, what they meant by abortion is what we mean today by um, abortions that are happening after 21, 22 weeks. So basically, you know, second trimester, later term abortions. Um, so the, the idea that the Christian tradition has always been against very early abortions, first trimester abortions, isn't true. Um, and so this idea that... Um, uh, women are being shamed and judged and blamed for abortion is a very, very, not just modern phenomenon, recent phenomenon. Um, and I think most people don't know that. The thing that's coming to mind is the result of abortion. Uh, it, it's the, it's the, now correct me where I'm wrong, speaking as a, as a male, um, it's, it's the ending of the pregnancy. Now the result of uh, that's just the result. When when we have a miscarriage, the result is the same, but we sort of rush with open arms and um you know, c compassion and sympathy when when that happens, but when an abortion happens, we automatically jump to malicious decision and selfishness. Mhm. Mm yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. You know, and, and we have as a country carved out 
certain, you know, quote unquote, acceptable reasons for abortion. Sure. Um, these sure. are these are the things that I call right the the acceptable justifications, and I, I in the book I talk about those as the prim reasons. So, prenatal health, rape, incest, and mother's life. Um, and so, in those cases, there is some grudging willingness to um, accept. Uh, terminations of those pregnancies. Um, but that's only, you know, 23 and a half percent of abortions in this country. So when you talk about the rush to judgment um, around sort of selfishness and um, licentiousness, that is very much um, related to, you know, more than 75 percent of abortions in the country. Um, so, uh, yeah, that really is the dominant um, attitude. And, and because of that dominant attitude, um, any, any woman who has an abortion for any reason that doesn't particularly feel comfortable talking about it. Um, and the ones you do often find or you'll find more willingness um, on the part of women who've had those prim abortions to speak about them um, because of that uh, sort of acceptability in those circumstances. Now, you had talked about how this idea of the shaming and the judging is actually a reflection of something deeper. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, and, and it really relates back to what we were talking about a minute ago about sort of the history of Christianity and, and, and where these ideas came from. Um, so, you know, throughout up until about 150 years ago, um, the church's position, the Roman Catholic church's position, um, on abortion, um, was such that, uh, and this was shared really, um, culturally in the sense that, uh, pregnancy wasn't even recognized until a woman felt fetal movement, right? Prenatal movement. So, um, that's called quickening and that doesn't happen until, you know, um, after the first trimester, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 weeks usually. Um, and so it wasn't until that stage that the church condemned abortion. Um, and so, uh, you know, any abortions up before that um, were, uh, they just wasn't even labeled as abortion. So if, if women, you know, took herbs or, um, you know, did something to induce um, you know, their cycle, uh, it was just considered, you know, a woman's prerogative, um, as part of taking care of her body and her health. Um, and in the mid, uh, you know, mid 19th century in this country, abortion was as common as, as uh, birth. So you had women who had seven or eight abortions and seven or eight children. Um, and it was, uh, quite normalized in the culture. Um, and it wasn't until um, a group of physicians, um, as the American Medical Association was um, really getting uh, started, um, who took on this campaign to criminalize abortion. Um, and, and that is really what um, shifted and changed uh, attitudes around women's practices of um, uh, using abortion as a means of birth control. I think that's probably where the prohibition against using abortion as a means of birth control came from. Um, and it was that same campaign in the mid 19th century that was really oriented around, um, treating women as if 
they, as children, as if they didn't know what was happening to their bodies, if they didn't under, as if they didn't understand pregnancy or childbirth. Um, and many of the same tactics that are being used today in terms of shaming and blaming and, and treating women, um, as if they don't understand what's happening to their bodies, um, are very much a reflection of those campaigns from the mid 19th century. So, so, I mean, to, to your question of where did the shaming and blaming come from, I think a lot of it came from um, this uh, campaign um, by these physicians uh, to try to, to control women's lives. It was really, I, I think a lot of this is about the social control of women um, and about uh, not trusting women to actually understand their bodies, understand their cycles, understand pregnancy and childbirth, and understand what it means to be a mother. Um, and that problem is just a deep reflection of patriarchy and misogyny in our culture um, that uh, is also, you know, part of a deep tradition within Christianity and within the Christian tradition. So if I understand you correctly, the issue really isn't the issue. No, I mean, I don't think this is about ending pregnancies. I think this is about um, controlling women, about women, you know, trusting women to be able to make important moral decisions about their lives and their bodies. Um, uh, generally speaking, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't necessarily, I believe that there are good people who are pro-life, who think that abortion is murder and stand, you know, against uh, abortion uh, for a very strong um, principle that they hold. But I, what I want people to recognize and understand is much of what has been taught to us culturally over the last 30 years is a reflection of much lar larger and longer patterns of um, patriarchy and misogyny and the desire to control women. So, so people have been fed um, uh, this um, ideology around abortion um, as a means of continuing that kind of social order, that patriarchal social order um, uh, that, uh, you know, Augustine outlines this social order. First you have angels, then you have men, then you have women, then you have children, then you have, you know, animals in the natural world. And, and that hierarchical patriarchal ordering of the social world is very much, um, uh, I argue, uh, undergirding the um, the ideology, the, the pro-life ideology that has come um, to be dominant in the last 30 years. I mean, we see this in uh, really the creation of the pro-life movement that came um, in the late 70s, early 80s with the creation of the moral majority. I mean, all of that orientation in the moral majority was around social control. It was around, um, you know, what society should look like and who's deviating from that. And the definition of what that social order should look like was a very traditionalist, patriarchal Christian understanding of society. So if I'm hearing you correctly, we have to understand the root and the cause for the push, but that doesn't negate where you land on what is life, what is not life. If I understand you correctly, you're, you're still all for however people define life, but we need to examine that with the lens of where this came from. 
Yeah, I mean, as a as a believer myself, I want to honor other people's beliefs, and I want to live in a country where there is religious freedom. So when we get to the point of talking about um, whether people should have the right to believe what they believe morally, absolutely, that's religious freedom. When you contrast that with wanting to codify one of those positions into law, right, and saying that one position on when life begins is now the law of the land, when that is not scientifically um, proven or biologically, um, uh, you know, uh, confirmed. Um, physicians don't want to take a stand on that. I mean, when we say life begins at conception, that is a theological claim. Um, and I want to honor people who hold that claim and say, you have a right to hold that claim, but you don't have a right to use that claim as the basis for law. So you have this idea that's that's very prevalent and, and you know, if, if our listeners haven't picked it up, let's let's really dive into it. But you have this idea of trusting women. What does that look like, not only in today's society, but, well, well, why don't you answer it from that point? And then I want to go into what does trusting women look like in our churches? Okay. I mean, I think when we're talking about, and so the title of my book is Trust Women. And and what I mean by that in the context of the abortion debate is that, um, you know, follows right up on what we were just talking about in terms of, um theological orientation, theological belief that, that, um, as a culture, uh, as people of God, um, you know, both, we need to trust that women are full moral agents created in the image of God with full moral capacity to make decisions about their life. Um, those decisions include when to have children, if they want to have children, when they are finished having children. Um, 60% of women who have abortions already have at least one child. There are um, quite a number of women who have several children and thought their childbearing was completed, right? So trusting women, this idea of trusting women really relates to recognizing and respecting um that, that women are people and um, that God intended for humans to um, be able to, um, uh, you know, act and uh, make decisions um, and live in the world. Um, even when we are confronted by um, conflict and unexpected situations, um, women will not be fully equal um, or recognize it fully human until we respect uh, that women can, you know, make those decisions. Um, and so the trusting women is, you know, that recognition that we as a culture, as a, a human community have to trust women to make those decisions in the same way that we trust men to make decisions that uh, are um, definitive of, of, of the direction of their lives. Um, and uh, that is um, something that we have not yet achieved in our society. Now, off the top of my head, there's something therapeutic to being able to discuss things in a judge judgment-free zone. Mm -hmm. There has to be Christian women 
who have experienced abortions, who have made that difficult decision and live with guilt and live with the depression of that decision because Mm -hmm. for whatever reason they made that decision, they felt it was the best thing for them. Mm -hmm. But now they find themselves in circles that are filled with those judgmental mentalities that aren't aware of the history of uh, of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. How would you, and I want to say this correctly, how would you, what, what would you say would be a first step to beginning to create forums to have this type of discussion so as to walk in freedom from it? Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, you're absolutely right. There, there are large numbers of um, actually women who identify as pro-life who have abortions. Um, and those studies have shown that those women are the ones. Um, so a couple of things. Let me back up. Studies show that 95% of women have high confidence about their abortion decision and have no regrets about it. So that does leave 5%, right? And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, neglect or, or be uncaring about that 5%. That 5% is, um, an important group of people that I think, uh, are being ignored by the church and, um, and certainly by, you know, secular feminist organizations, um, as well. So, um, I think that it's important, um, to have uh, places and spaces in the church where we can talk openly about um, pregnancy, about um, childbearing, about what it means to parent, um, and about abortion, uh, all as part of the same conversation, Um, because all of this is part of women's reproductive health and lives, right? You know, add to that miscarriage. You you brought up miscarriage earlier. a lot of women uh, talk about how uh, painful their pregnancy loss from miscarriage was and how that was not recognized adequately in their uh, church communities either. So, you know, I think uh, there's all sorts of um, aspects of women's reproductive health and lives um, that are, are not talked about in any way in the church. And so I think that it's important to open up a space where we talk about sexuality in church, um, where we talk about healthy sexuality, where we talk about, you know, just sexuality, sexuality that reflects um, uh, honor and respect and care for um, uh, for others. And within that conversation, we talk about what happens when you have an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. Um, and, and how do we help women think through those decisions? And then how do we support them after they've made those decisions? Um, and that is not something, um, that I have seen really any churches doing. Um, the framework that I offer in the book is really a framework of reproductive justice, precisely because I'm interested in moving not only away from the justification paradigm, which shapes our country's conversations, but toward an alternative, a new narrative, a narrative that really is much broader than um, uh, just talking about abortion um, and a narrative that allows us to talk about the wholeness of women's lives and the wholeness of women's reproductive um, experiences. Uh, And that 
idea of reproductive justice um, came out of a group of 12 black women in 1994 um, who were at a, a Clinton healthcare conference. Um, and they came together and the conference was really focused in its portion that it was talking about abortion on choice, you know, and really focused all the language was about choice. And, and these 12 black women said, look, you know, this language is not helpful for our communities. Women in our communities, you know, they don't really have a lot of choice. There are a lot of issues in their lives um, that are not being addressed by the narrow focus on abortion that's reflected in this current climate, you know, and so they developed this new framework of reproductive justice, which has three primary principles. The first one is the right to have an abortion, but the second one is the right to have a child, because for a lot of black women and a lot of women of color in this country, forced sterilization um, has been a major part of their experience of their reproductive lives. Um, and, you know, for um, poor women, 75% um, of uh, current abortions are procured by women who are, you know, 200% of the poverty line. So, you know, as a minister and a person of faith, I also don't want women who don't want abortions to feel like they have to have them because they don't have the resources they need. So, you know, this framework, um, I think opens that up the, the, to have those, those larger conversations. So the third pillar then is, um, that women, all women have the right to parent the children that they do have in safe and healthy environments. So if we in the church were able to embrace a reproductive justice framework, and talk about the wholeness of women's lives, um, about what does it mean to have a child? What does it mean to not have a child? What does it mean to be able to raise the children that you have in safe and healthy environments? And, and what are the ways in which our church communities are involved or our congregations are involved in our local communities to make sure that all the circumstances that are necessary for supporting women and families are in place so that we can actually um, ensure that women aren't feeling pressured into ending pregnancies for, um, you know, lack of resources or lack of support or, uh, you know, any number of other things that we could be addressing, um, through public policy or, or through, um, you know, changes in our, uh, in our community structures, um, et cetera. So I think that, um, the idea of opening up conversations about what does reproductive justice look like allows for people who have differing opinions about, differing beliefs about the morality of abortion to have a broader conversation that could be potentially very productive, where we could find common ground outside of the abortion question on other um, other uh, strategies that we could approach, right? So, you know, everybody in the country should be concerned that half of pregnancies are unplanned, right? So if that's a public health crisis, if that's something that, you know, we could agree on, then we could begin to talk about, okay, then how do we get women access to a variety of forms of contraception um, so that they can find one and use one that actually works for their bodies and for their lifestyle and for their, um, you know, reproductive health needs. But until we can get to that point, um, you know, then we are going to, um, you know, continue to uh, fail at trying to have these broader conversations um, as long as we're simply focused on the narrow frame of abortion and abortion rights or abortion um, as choice. 
now I imagine because of the different opinion and, and point of view and perspective that you're sharing, has there been any pushback to your work, to your thoughts, things like that? Sure. I mean, it's also important to recognize that, that the perspective that I'm developing, the pro I mean, my perspective is re in, along the lines of reproductive justice is, um, is relatively new, but the mainline denominations in the country have been pro-choice on record for being pro-choice um, since before Roe v. Wade. So, you know, the idea that Christians um, support uh, the right of women to have abortions um, has a has a, a very long history and um, has been very common across the country, but it's not something that a lot of people know. So the dominant narrative is definitely the narrative that has been put forward by um, you know, traditionalist evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholic um, uh, clergy, um, but uh, but this idea of um, Christians as pro-choice um, itself isn't a new idea. That said, I have gotten um, positive feedback from a lot of those folks who are part of that uh, pro-choice religious community um, who keep saying uh, thank you, you know, for writing this book because I've believed this for decades and yet it's absent in the public sphere. Um, and then as you can imagine on the other side, I've had, a, I've, I've been attacked quite a bit by people from um, pro-life circles who are very upset about what I'm saying. So, um, you know, I knew that going in that if you're going to go and talk about any sort of controversial issue um, and try to, um, you know, really uh, open up new ways of having that conversation, there are going to be a lot of people who are uncomfortable with that. Mm. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Rebecca. And as we kind of bring our time to a close, I mean, you kind of hit on it, but we'll ask the question anyway. Uh, what's what's something that you think the church could do to move in a more positive direction? It could be on this subject, but maybe it's just something that you're observing as a reverend. Um, you know, I think that the church really needs to talk openly um, and in uh, ways that promote dialogue about sexuality and sexual health and, um, uh, you know, pregnancy and childbearing and, and parenting, um, you know, and not just how to parent. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of information about, you know, how to parent, but about the sacred task of parenting, right? What does it mean to parent? What does it mean to raise children, um, you know, to, to be healthy and whole and full and um, uh, beings, um, you know, reflected in the image of God? Um, and we don't have those larger conversations about, you know, do you want to have children or not with couples in marriage counseling? Um, you know, not everybody is a good parent. Not everybody wants to parent. And cultural pressure to parent um, isn't necessarily, you know, good for those, for that couple, nor is it necessarily good for any potential children that might come out of that. And so, you know, talking openly about, you know, are you called to be a parent? Is this part of who you feel God wants you to be and, and how you respond to your, you know, um, 
understanding of uh, your journey um, as a Christian is is does that include parenting? And if it doesn't, you know, how can how can you be responsible and you know make sure that you know you don't face that um, uh, you know as much as you can? You know, one of the biggest reasons we have unplanned pregnancies is um, the failure of birth control. But to the extent that you can, how do you you know order your life so that you prevent um, you know, unplanned pregnancies, you know, and, and how do we find ways of, you know, making sure that children in our communities, um, are loved and cared for and, um, uh, part of the lives of people who choose not to have children, right? In all members of our community, most of the people I know who choose not to have children don't dislike children. They just don't feel like they would be good parents. Um, so I think that the church really has a role in having these deeper, broader conversations about the sacred task of parenting, um, about, uh, you know, the sacredness of our sexuality and our sexual beings. And how do we help people in our churches and in our congregations have those conversations in ways that help us grow spiritually and emotionally and, um, you know, in our faith journey and in ways that help us think more carefully and clearly about, um, you know, how to relate those ideas and beliefs uh, into the larger sphere, into the public policy in our country that, that then reflects what does it look like to support families. Those are great thoughts, Rebecca, and, and thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people connect with you? Tell us a little bit about the book and how people can find you online. Sure. Um, so I have a website, RebeccaToddPeters.com, um, and you can find links to all my books there, um, especially this new one, Trust Women, A Progressive Christian Argument for Reproductive Justice. Um, my blog posts uh, are there. You can sign up for, um, you know, the the... Uh, you can get email notifications when I have new posts there. Um, and I would uh, love to uh, hear from your listeners. And thank you so much for this opportunity. You got it. Thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure. That wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts on this episode. You can shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. You can slide into those DMs on Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook as well. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not conflicts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.